the Slaughter and May podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Slaughter and May podcast. I'm Graham Rounce, and I'm joined by Samantha Brady, Mark Gulliford, and Ben Redding from our real estate team. Sam's background is in environment, and she is a key driver of the firm's ESG practice. Mark and Ben are members of our real estate team and advise a range of clients on their building requirements. Between them, they have a good understanding of ESG considerations for corporate occupiers. Sam, if I can start with you, please. Are you able to give an indication of just how important ESG considerations have become for our clients? Thanks, Graham. Well, I think it's fair to say that our whole client base has been ramping up its efforts in this and has been doing so for the last couple of years. So some of that is obviously being driven by legal requirements and policy, but it's really the voluntary initiatives where we see the real drivers for change. So that can be whether you're setting science-based targets, like we have as a firm, or integrating the UN Sustainable Development Goals, or going that step further and integrating the recommendations of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which has to really happen at both the operational level and the um, commercial and corporate mindset. But the way that our clients occupy buildings is actually a real challenge within this general decarbonisation journey. And that's because um, commercial and industrial buildings, they um, account for a large percentage of the um, greenhouse gas emissions from buildings within the UK. So just looking at that, there's 1.66 million commercial buildings in the UK, and they account for a third of the emissions from buildings. And that's why the commercial built environment has to be a key focus um, for the government and for the sector. And it's really encouraging to see that the commercial built environment is a key theme at COP26 this year. Generally, our clients are occupying buildings as tenants, and that in itself um, is a sort of provides some interesting uh, challenges because they're having to look at the building, you know, for its fit for purpose, for its operations. They're having to think about the building as part of it, their kind of ESG impact. But um, they the actual business will also be part of a, a wider supply chain and there will be sort of stakeholders within that supply chain who will be putting pressure on the corporate occupiers to reduce their um, environmental impact and carbon footprint because that in turn will reduce the carbon footprint and environmental impact of the much wider supply chain and that's going to get more interesting as companies are having to report on and assess um, their broader environmental impact of maybe a product that they provide or or a service that they provide. And for corporate occupiers who are tenants, they can't do this alone um, and they need uh, the right degree of support, uh, information sharing, cooperation with landlords. And at the moment, that's still very much framed around the E in the ESG. So there may be reports of energy use. There may be reports on even embodied carbon in more sophisticated building setups. But um, there will have to be a move away from just looking at uh, E. It, there's going to be a big drive towards looking at the S in terms of use of buildings. Thank you, Sam. That That's really interesting. It really does feel like that this is now someone that's something that's on everyone's agenda. Turning next to Mark, 
Mark, the social impact of buildings isn't a new thing, is it? But are we seeing more client-led initiatives? I think that's right, Graham. It's, it's definitely not a new thing. And actually, you can go back to sort of the 1890s and find people like Cadbury's constructing villages with a very defined social purpose um, connected with, with their wider business. Um, and then social contribution has been an important part of the, the planning system for a long time also. Um, so Section 106 agreements used to uh, engage things like contributions to local infrastructure, transport, public realm improvements and so on, uh, and obviously affordable housing, which, which is a huge part of, of the planning system. Uh, more recently, we've things, seen things like uh, community infrastructure levy, so funding very specific infrastructure investment uh, in London, for example, Crossrail, uh, and there are more reforms proposed to that. But I think what we're seeing from our clients is, is perhaps the social impact being an earlier part of the thinking in terms of the purpose of a particular development, uh, and also clients thinking about how they align some of that to their broader corporate strategy. Uh, so whether that's developer clients thinking about their impact in particular communities, or whether that's corporate occupier clients thinking about how they use the buildings that they occupy and their links with a, a particular area for a social purpose. Great, thank you very much, Mark. That's that's really interesting. Again, showing this this has been around for some time, but what I think we're now seeing is is a rapid acceleration in in the evolution of ESG. Ben, um, turning to you, I know you've been involved in some recent lettings for clients. How exactly has the ESG manifested itself on these deals? Thanks, Graham. I think it's fair to say that ESG has become a real headline issue for many businesses when they're looking at moving headquarters. And in many ways, that shouldn't really be a surprise. As Sam mentioned, ESG is now a board level issue and a tenant's HQ is usually the epicentre of its business. It houses large numbers of its staff there, it brings clients, stakeholders and investors there. So it's imperative that the building that they're moving to reflects the tenant's commitment to promoting ESG. But what has actually been really interesting from the matters where I've acted is how clients are now really focused on the E, S and G of ESG. For a long time, I think the E of ESG have been the part of the equation in the spotlight. But now clients have really started to focus on and delve down into all three of these. In respect of the E of ESG, we are still seeing energy efficiency ratings, but we're also seeing such things as landlord commitments in respect to achieving certain air school ratings and ventilation rates, which are obviously a direct result of COVID. Uh, landlord commitments both during the construction phase of the building and its operation to divert minimum amounts of waste from landfill. Uh, and also commitments both from land and tenant respect to promoting the circular economy. I, I think in terms of the E, it's, it's fair to say that clients no longer see it's acceptable simply to say, oh, this building's got an EPC rating of, of A, so therefore it's a green building. I think tenants now do just want more. In respect of the S of ESG, I'm really starting to see clients question how its building can make a positive social contribution whether this is by making the building or estate available for local community groups, targets in respect of uh, local employment, which obviously originates through the planning system, or, or even things as seemingly simple such as ensuring that people providing services to the building are paid the London living wage. These are all things tenants are now looking at and starting to question. I think tenants are also starting to think about how they make their offices places their staff wants to be, and we'll come on to talk about this later. You know, what facilities does the building have? Does it have adequate bike and changing facilities? What's the quality of those facilities? Does the premises allow for collaboration, a sense of community? 
you know, ultimately, is the premises somewhere that the staff want to be and want to come to work? And finally, on the G of the ESG, we're seeing a heightened importance on both the landlord and the tenant side to maintain a continual open dialogue. Property lawyers will be familiar with leases containing provisions in respect of setting up environmental working committees for buildings. But I think in reality, in, in times gone by, whilst these committees existed on paper, the truth is they didn't really exist in reality. I think these days are behind us. I think buildings will now have active ESG committees where both the landlord and the tenant are fully engaged. And just on that point of kind of engagement and collaboration, it is vital that both landlord and tenant engage on these ESG issues because a lot of what we're talking about and what the three of us will talk about today simply wouldn't be possible unless there's a coherent partnership between the two. Great. Thank you very much, Ben. I couldn't help but but feel a lot of what you were talking about related to perhaps some of the larger deals, new developments, state-of-the-art, HQ, perhaps central London, dare I say it. But, but what about the wider market? What about the wider London market, the regions? Do you think a, some sort of two-tier market is developing? Absolutely. And I think this will only become more pronounced over the coming years. I think for all occupiers, large and small, those buildings that are lagging behind will, will just simply become less and less desirable. But I think the two-tier market is true from both the landlord and the tenant side. I had an interesting statistic a few weeks ago that of the leasing deals over the last two years that have achieved the highest rents, 80% are on buildings that have achieved a pre-am rating of very good or above. Uh, there was also uh, some recent research from Knight Frank that the London office buildings that have achieved the highest standards of sustainability can achieve up to a 12.3% premium in rent. Now, look, while this clearly doesn't show the full picture, it certainly gives you an idea that tenants will pay a premium for a sustainable building. Now, for new builds, it, it's relatively easy, or I should say easier, to set out a progressive ESG agenda, just starting from you know, a blank slate. But it's more difficult for existing assets that may be slightly older. And for these buildings, landlords will need to work with their tenants to consider how they consider how they can be improved. It may be that landlords need to invest their own money to improve the buildings, but ultimately, landlords will need to consider in the long term whether not investing is something they can they can really afford to do. Great, thank you very much, Ben. Sam, returning to you, Ben has given indication of of some of the the things he's come across on as as we said the larger deals, but also mentioned that a little bit harder perhaps with some of the older buildings and, and also goes to value inevitably. What is in the government's armory to ensure a wider application? And do you think we will see increased statutory intervention? So Graham, the existing armory is diverse, but unfortunately, I don't think it's fit for purpose at the moment for really for dealing with the climate change emergency in respect of the use and occupation of commercial buildings. It's very much focused on carbon and greenhouse gas emissions and not broader ESG improvements. The general theme at the moment is very much getting at buildings to make them nearly zero energy. And that's very much focused on the kind of high energy performance. So that comes from the form of the building regulations and the relevant energy efficiency requirements that are set out in that. And then for existing buildings, you've got your energy performance certificates so that's the, the rating that a building needs to be given before it can be sold or let. And then on top of that, we're seeing, you know, the increasing MEES requirements, so the minimum energy efficiency standards, 
whereby landlords are just simply not permitted to let um, buildings that are substandard from an energy efficiency perspective. And then at the macro level, um, the government is required to produce a much longer term renovation strategy for dealing with existing building stock. Because as I said at the beginning of this podcast, that's the you know the real challenge in, in the UK. It's not about the new buildings that are being produced. It's about, well, what do we deal, how do we deal with the existing building stock and make that fit for purpose from a kind of environmental standards perspective? And that's why I think there's going to be a real um, driver for change in the form of looking at how we actually assess buildings and in order to therefore come up with something that means that you can assess them properly, you can then include a framework for driving improvements in the relevant um, ratings of buildings. So at the moment, buildings are very much assessed on a kind of theoretical basis. So how should a building perform from an energy efficiency viewpoint? And that's looking at the building just as it's, you know, it's, it's materials, it's systems, etc. What it doesn't do, and this is key, is look at how the building is actually going to be occupied on a day-to-day basis. And so the government is looking at introducing a scheme which is very heavily borrowed from the Australian Neighbours Scheme, whereby a building is assessed in terms of its how, how it performs with that relevant occupier in situ and then once that kind of way of assessing a building and giving it a rating has been developed you know i i can see a real drive for there to be um kind of benchmarking and for requirements to improve the ratings of the buildings in very much in the similar way to what we've seen with um, the minimum energy efficiency standards I think it is really important as well that this is going to be part of a mandatory scheme if it is introduced and it's going to be in a very much a phased way so for buildings initially it would be um, offices over a thousand square meters and that they are the buildings that tend to be more sophisticated and it there isn't always a correlation between um, how a building is rated without looking at its occupation against how a building is rated with its occupation but um, this will provide the government, but also investors and landlords and tenants with a much better way of um, comparing buildings. And at the moment, there just simply isn't that same like for like comparison out there. Great. Thank you, Sam. So clearly more to come. Watch this space. Mark, it's fair to say, I think, that ESG is definitely the flavour of the month. and. If I may say so, this this feels a, a lot more positive subject after months and months of um, COVID-19 and before that Brexit. But what does ESG actually mean in the context of a client's property estate? Well, I think we've obviously talked a lot about the sustainability angle to all of this, and I think that's going to continue to be the main focus for most of our corporate clients in terms of their occupation of buildings. What does that mean practically? Well, uh, particularly in the context of leased estates, it's going to mean a lot more collaboration with landlords. Uh, data is something that's talked about a lot. And for some years now, we've been talking about the importance of landlords having access to data on things like energy use within a building. What I think we're starting to see is that becoming more of a two-way thing. So actually, 
corporate occupiers are themselves interested in how buildings are performing and and hopefully that then develops into people thinking about how things can be made more efficient and maybe even uh, the sort of commercial rationale for shared investment in, in buildings and that's a, a tricky topic to get right there's a, a clear tension between a, a landlord with a long-term ownership of a building and a tenant who perhaps has a, a much shorter term interest but I think increasingly there is a rationale for thinking about how there can be shared investment uh, and making a landlord's base build work with a corporate occupier's fit out for example to ensure efficiency in operation and not just initial construction obviously that links to design and perhaps that moves a bit into some of the other topics that are going to be important in this space things like wellness which relates to um, issues like building ventilation uh, also building connectivity and flexibility and on the more social side thinking perhaps about building use and the interaction of uh, uh, buildings with the surrounding area. Um, we, we've seen actually in, in the pandemic the, the huge impact um, of buildings being empty uh, and how that's affected surrounding businesses that uh, the whole ecosystem in the city, for example, which has been very quiet over the last 18 months. Uh, and I think as people move back into office occupation and in, indeed in, in other sectors, um, the S and the social impact of buildings is going to continue to be important as corporate occupiers think about how they relate to businesses around them, their supply chains and their employees. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, latching on a little bit to what you were talking about to the end that, that, that's on everyone's lips around um, the coffee shops in the city, talking about plans for coming back to the office, different strategies, Ben, if I can return to you, please, on that on that subject, employees are, are clearly a huge part of this. So just how important is the ESG angle as clients, employers start considering their strategies for the return to the office? Yeah, very, Graham. As I said earlier, the office has got to be a place where employees want to be. This is why I think in terms of both the tenant's choice of building and the tenant's fit out, the interests of employees are, be are being taken into consideration. I think most of our clients as part of the headquarters relocations will consult with their employees about what they want from the new offices, what facilities they would like, how they would like the offices set out, open plans, cellular collaboration spaces. Now, I'm not saying employers will be pleased to hear this, that every single ask or want of employees is being accepted, but it's now not simply the case that a handful of executives select a building decide to fit out and then just tell their employees um, where they're going. If the last 18 months has shown us anything, is that a large number of employees are happy from work, working from home. And if employers are to attempt kind of employees back to the office at, at whatever frequency that is, the office has got to be somewhere employees want to be. So the voice of employees has to be heard. Um, on the actual kind of ESG credentials, I was speaking to a client the other day who we're currently acting for and she was reviewing some of the ESG drafting we'd suggested in the lease and she said this is great our employees will expect this and that to me says everything it isn't just corporately the business wants to expect to you know, support an ESG agenda but actually the management of the business recognizes that their employees expect it and it's a selling point of business for both the current employees and potential future employees. Great. Thank you very much, Ben. It's certainly nice to see um, a lot more people back in the city, that's for sure. Mark, looking a little bit wider, 
clients clearly can't do this on their own. To what extent do you think lenders are starting to get in on the act? And also how important is government investment in, in the necessary infrastructure? Well, we've already touched a little bit on, on how some of this impacts on value uh, of property. Um, and from that perspective, it's clearly going to be of interest to lenders as well. I, I think for a long time, uh, sustainability provision uh, and the like have been a bit of an add-on in diligence, um, even from a, a technical perspective, uh, perhaps lower priority has been the energy efficiency. Now, as that becomes very crucial to value, it's going to be more important to lenders and actually the ability to access data, um, the ability to carry out surveys and to carry out upgrade works are all going to be really important. And, and that clearly has an impact on corporate occupiers as well in terms of what they can expect from uh, property owners. More broadly than that, uh, there's obviously a whole topic and we, we don't have time today to go into it around green finance, uh, green bonds, green loans uh, with lenders, lending expecting very particular targets to be met, um, expecting that funds to be used in a, in a particular way and to meet certain ESG targets. Um, and in terms of government intervention, there are a number of, of different initiatives uh, and Sam's touched on, on some of the regulatory framework that's that's relevant here. Um, I, I think we'll continue to see that develop. Um, we'll continue to see government trying to incentivize the right behaviors, but also setting up frameworks that allow some of this to be measured and allow a degree of accountability. Um, so that people can be working to common standards uh, and hopefully that allows for more effective action in some of these areas. Great, thank you, Mark. So Sam, ESG is clearly now relevant right across the board and, and is at the heart of corporate planning, but how can clients measure and report on their progress in this area? Well, clients definitely don't need to wait until all of these um, requirements become mandatory in terms of how buildings are assessed or what you need to report as part of your wider um, corporate reporting. Um, if you take this at sort of what clients can do now, if you're looking at it at building level, there are various um, voluntary accreditations around and, you know, they're helpful in that they're set, they set a, a framework to allow all the relevant data to be collected and, and assessed and looking at what improvements can be made and making sure that the building is considered very much from a holistic perspective. So you can't just look at um, what um, energy usage of the building is. You've also got to look at things like, well, what are the materials made out of that are being used in buildings, particularly where there's been kind of alterations to the building further through the life stages of the building. And then at a more corporate level, I mean, we are seeing many of our clients adopting the task force on climate related financial disclosures as a framework. And the importance of these um, frameworks is really the, the way that they bring all the different parts of the business together. So that's whether the people looking after the property portfolio, the HR team, the insurance team, the treasury. I think it's a really exciting time really for clients because it is allowing them to kind of take stock and see what they're already doing, what they can build upon and making sure that what they're already doing receives the right amount of attention within the business and, and therefore seeing what else can be done. So 
there are different you know it's not as if there's one size fits all there's different ways of designing these um sort of schemes and, and frameworks but it's something that can definitely be done now and and should be done now we can't just simply wait for the um government to require certain reporting to be carried out thanks very much sam and, and also as we approach the end of, of this podcast thank you also very much to um mark and ben these are certainly interesting times and clearly buildings and corporate occupation is very much at the heart of it can i before we leave just ask each of you for one key takeaway ben if i can start with you please yeah absolutely graham I think from all the HQ matters I've worked on, my, my one key takeaway is that no one party can do this alone. In order to allow any building to achieve its full ESG potential, there has to be collaboration and partnership between the landlord and tenant or, or tenant and developer. And as part of this partnership, th there needs to be an acceptance that ESG is constantly changing and evolving. So what may be the gold standard today may not be so in a year's time. It may be appropriate in the future to set different or higher targets. I think both parties need to be willing and open to this um, in order for all buildings to, to hit and continue hit to hit their ESG potential. Thank you, Ben. Sam? For me, the important thing is that the environmental impact and broader sort of carbon footprint of a building, that shouldn't just... You know, be thought of at the design stage. A building can be occupied for many years, it can have many different occupiers, but there is this sort of general life cycle of a building and it's important that the um, ESG considerations are considered at each stage. So that's the design, the occupation and the alterations right through to the demolition. And, um, and that's why I think it's really useful and interesting that the um, you know, industry bodies are considering how to carry out assessments of the life cycle of a building. Thanks, Sam. And last but by no means least, Mark. I think from my perspective, sometimes we, we talk about these topics, there are a whole range of initiatives, regulations. It can feel perhaps overwhelming as a, a corporate occupier with limited resources to dedicate to the, the building's estate. Um, and how do you make sense of all of that? Well, I think uh, aligning your efforts to broader corporate purpose is really important. All organisations kind of know what they stand for uh, and know what they're trying to achieve and their buildings uh, are often a huge part of the business uh, and perhaps can be used in a more effective way to to align to that whether that's for uh, environmental purposes or social purposes. So I, th I think that's the the challenge but also um, one of the ways of making sense of these disparate topics is, is to think about how all of this fits in with the business's broader corporate purpose. Thank you, Mark. Um, as we approach the end of the podcast, can I just thank everyone for listening? And please feel free to speak to one of us or your usual contact at the firm for more information. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.